for the next few minutes. I want to talk to you today. It's called uh, the message, The Heart of the Gospel. And it is John 3.16. I'm going to say just remain in your seat while I read the passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's called the heart of the gospel. It's called the gospel in a nutshell. It is really the gospel explained. If you understand the concept of the gospel, it's God's good news. You can take the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Really the entire Bible is the gospel from the book of Genesis right to the book of the Revelation. But here is, again, this is the gospel literally explained, made simple. Now, I became a Christian at 23 years old. I was not a believer. I was an atheist up until uh, that time. And one day I was sitting watching college football with some friends of mine, like two of my best friends that I grew up with. And I don't know if you remember this, but they used to put John 3.16 banners in the back of the goalpost, and every time they had to kick a field goal or an extra point, you would see John 3.16. So the three of us were sitting there Saturday afternoon, right around the corner here, we had an apartment, and um, we asked, you know, the, the question, what are these John 3.16 signs? And I had a, an old, it was an old Roman Catholic Dewey version that my mother had given me when I was married, and I went and I looked up John 3.16, and I didn't understand it nor did my two friends. We didn't understand it. It, it. it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2.14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I was that natural man. I was a man without the Spirit. I did not have God in my life. I did not want to have God in my life. I was not interested in having God in my life. It was about my life, about my goals, about my dreams. And I could not understand that simple passage that I just read to you, John 3.16. Some of you sitting here today, you may be that natural man or woman. And maybe everything that, that you just experienced was absolute foolishness to you. My wife dragged me into a church once before I was saved, and I sat there and I said, this is foolishness. I did not want to be bothered with it. I didn't want to be a part of it. It was a Christmas Eve service. So you may be sitting there and you may be saying, boy, this people, these people singing and worshiping and the music and everything, this is just foolishness. I want to just say this to you. I want to ask right now if we would just all pray and God would open up your heart. Because if he doesn't open up your heart, what I'm going to say here in the next few minutes will be totally foolishness to you. You'll walk out of here and it will be totally meaningless to you. So would you just join me in prayer for a moment? Father, I know you love each and every person here, from the littlest child to the oldest adult. You value them. You place great worth on each and every one of their souls. You love them. And I ask you right now, Lord, that you would open up every heart in this room. And for those, Lord God, who have never opened their heart to you today, may be the day of their salvation, may it be. And for those who know you, Lord, may you open their heart in a greater way that they would come to know how great a love you have and have shown 
to each and every one of them. And we all pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, John 3.16, let me just kind of break it down here again for you. First thing, uh, God, the greatest. And it just simply begins for God, right? Now, that's speaking of the God of the Bible, the God of the Jewish people, not the God of this world, not the God of man's imagination, not the God of your imagination, not the God of the Hindus, which uh, we call it pantheism, which essentially says God is all and all is God. And if you really understand pantheism and you take it to its fullest understanding, if all is God and God is all, there is no God. Actually, pantheism really leads to atheism. It's not of the God of the New Age movement, right, that God is some kind of force. Remember the Schwartz is with you? Okay, uh, it, that, that's, that's not the God that is described here. It's not the God of paganism, the God of polytheism, the, the teaching that there are many gods. It, it's not Zeus, it's not Thor, it's not Allah, it's not Molech, it's not Baal. When you have here for God, as the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph, the God of David and Moses and Joshua, the God of the prophets, the God of Jesus Christ, and the God of the apostles. The Bible tells us that this God created all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim in the Hebrew, the almighty creator, the maker of all. If you stand and you look up at the, uh, at the stars at night, they tell us there are 100 billion, by the way, 100 billion is a generic term. They don't know if there are exactly 100 billion, but they say that there are 100 billion galaxies like our galaxy with the nine planets in our Milky Way. Okay, I'm sorry, there are there 100 billion solar systems like our solar system in the Milky Way galaxy that we live in. And there are 100 billion Milky Way galaxies or like Milky Way galaxies that fill the entire universe. The Bible says that God is the one who created it. Didn't happen by chance. Wasn't a big bang, right? If you have a big bang, what do you need? A big banger, right? And by the way, whenever there's a big bang, it always creates chaos. This universe was created with order. One of the things that really confused me, and I had my atheistic moments of doubt when I understood that. The Bible tells us that this God... He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That he essentially, he sustains and holds all things together. Do you realize that, that 96% of you and 96% of the universe that we live in is what is called essentially dark matter? In other words, it's nothing there. 4%, 4%. So technically... I should be able to put my hand through this pulpit. But there's something there that's holding it together. I want to read a, a quote to you. And I quote, the overwhelming majority of the universe is who knows, explains science writer Richard Panic, who spoke about these oddities of the universe on Monday, May 9th at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York uh, C-U-N-O-I, CUNY University, here in Manhattan. And he said this, it is unknown for now and possibly forever, right? 
what holds this whole thing together. But we know, right, when we study the Bible, again, this strange, this strange 96% of nothingness, that there is something very mysterious that holds it all together. And that is what the Bible says, that it is God. We're also told that, that this God is in all places, that he is omnipresent. The pagan philosopher said, in him we live and move and have our being. Psalm chapter 139, verse 7 through 9, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend in heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell to the outmost parts of the sea. In other words, he is everywhere. You cannot get away from him. He is in all things and he fills all things. So this God, this God of the Bible, it tells us so loved that he so loved, the greatest love, right? John 3.16, for God so loved. And the word there for love is, is different. You know, in English, we have one word for love. So you say, I love my little puppy dog. And with the same breath, you say you love your spouse or you love your child, right? It's, 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 I've had dogs. It's not the same. I love my car. And then, again, in the same breath, we'll say, I love God. There are four Greek words for love, one of which is not in the Bible, three which are. Storge speaks about affectionate love. It's the love you have for your children, the love that you have for your parents. And then you have phileos, and phileos is brotherly love, the love you have for your friends. And then there is eros, and eros is... It's not something perverse. We get the word erotic from, but it's romantic love, sensual love. It's, it's the love that you have for your spouse. And then there is agape love. And that is the word that's used here in John 3.16. Agape love, it is um, a love that's not touchy-feely. It's, it's not sentimental. It's not emotional. It's, it's not um, driven by attraction. We tend, we tend to love or attract it to. It's the love of the will. Agape differs from all the other types of love in that it is the highest love, it is the purest love, it is the love of, of choice. Again, not attraction or obligation. Agape love is sacrificial love that essentially heals. It, it, it unites and it's concerned, it's, its greatest concern is the object of its focus. So when you, when you look at that, God's main focus of his love on your life is your highest, highest good. Your, your highest good, which may not be what you want. You want to be happy. Right? You, you want to experience a certain fulfillment. Most of the time, it's, it's temporary fulfillment. But God is concerned with the big picture, and not just the picture in this life. He's concerned with the eternal picture for you and your life. That is the love of God. So it tells us, for God, again, so love the world. And that is the greatest number, the, the world. 
So we read that and we, we ask ourselves, well, is, is God in the real estate business? Well, when it says the world, is he talking about the dirt, the earth, the trees, the mountains, the clouds in the sky, right? The oceans and streams and rivers. See, God is not. That is not what it means when it talks about what he loves or who he loves. Down in Sandy Hook, New Jersey, some of you go down on, you know, go down the beach, you go down to Sandy Hook. There's actually a, a, a fort there, uh, Fort Hancock. And at one time it was used by the military. And um, during World War II, it was where they were shipping a lot of soldiers off. They would come from the different bases after they went through basic training. They would go to Fort Hancock and then they would get on ships and they would head off to Europe, most of whom would never come back home. And there were uh, 2,000 uh, young soldiers, most of them 18, 19 years old, who were at Fort Hancock getting ready to go on a ship or ships to cross over the ocean and to uh, battle in France. And there was a man down in, um, down in Sandy Hook, and he wanted to share the gospel with these men before they went off to battle, hoping that some of them would receive Jesus, and then if they die, they would go and they would receive you know, eternal life. And um, the commander refused to let him on the base, but what he did agree that he could do was give them something. And so he, he purchased 2,000 mirrors, and on the back of the mirror he put John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then down at the bottom he put... If you, if, uh, he said, if you want to see who it is that God loves, look on the other side. And as they turned the mirror around, they saw themselves. Who does God love? He loves you. He, lo he loves you. He loves me. He loves us, again, with this uh, agape love. That's a love that, that's bigger and greater and vaster than the very universe that he created. And it says that he gave the greatest act. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. I want to tell you a story. During the Depression, there was a man named John Griffin. And John Griffin was the controller of a drawbridge, right, that went over the Mississippi River. And every day, a number of times, he would have to pull a lever that would open or close the drawbridge. When the trains were coming through, he would close it so that the trains could cross and they could go on to their cities, St. Louis, Tennessee. And one day he took his son Greg, a little boy, seven or eight years old. And the little boy was exploring like little boys do. And he fell down into the cogs, the giant gears. And he got his legs stuck. And John Griffith heard the whistle blowing, and he's looking around for his son as the train is approaching. And when he looked down into the cogs, there was his son Greg with his legs stuck. And he was left with a split-second decision. Do I sacrifice my son 
Or do I allow the train with 400 passengers to go off into the Mississippi River and possibly kill them all? What would you do? I've thought about that. I have one son. Love him with all my heart. I don't know if I would sacrifice my son for 400 people that I don't know. Well, he, he made the decision to pull the lever and his son was crushed and killed. The bridge came down and as the train roared by, he was looking out from the control tower and he saw businessmen doing their business. He saw little children. He described it as putting their spoons in their ice cream dishes, eating ice cream, and women just going about their responsibilities. And he cried out to them and he said, do you see what I've done for you? For God so loved the world that he gave. Do you see what he's done for you? And then it goes on and it says that he gave his only begotten son. That's the greatest gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I want you to look at the word begotten because it is used in the King James Version, the New King James Version, which is what we use here, the NASB, and has caused a lot of problems through the years. The false teachers have latched onto this phrase to prove their false teaching that Jesus is created and that he isn't truly God. And it really is a poor, sometimes I say this to you here, some of the translation and the words that are translated are sometimes done quite poorly, even by the best scholars. They make mistakes. And I look at this and I say, this, this is a mistake. Because the word, the word is monogenes. There's the Greek rendition underneath it. And, and it carries with it two, two definitions. One is pertaining to be the only one within its kind in a specific relationship. When it says that Jesus is the only begotten son, he is the only one, the only son, who has that very unique relationship with his father in heaven. It also carries with it a uniqueness of, of kind and class. He is unique of his kind. He is the only begotten son of God. The only son of God. There is no other. Now, it's, it says that, that we can become sons, but he is the son. He is ultimately the only son. And that is essentially what God gave him. He gave him, and he gave us, his only begotten son. And then it says that whoever, the greatest invitation. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whoever, who da whoever? Who da whoever? Because that is the greatest invitation. That is an inclusive invitation. That is for, for everyone or anyone, right? It, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your color is. It doesn't matter what your creed is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your sex is. That is the greatest invitation that he invites whoever would come and put their faith in his son, they shall receive the gift of eternal life. It, it, it tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, that God wants everyone to be saved and to fully understand the truth. He wants everyone. He wants every one of you. 
There is only one God and there is only one way that people can reach God. That way is through Jesus Christ, who as a man gave himself to pay for everyone to be free. This is the message that was given to us at just the right time, whoever. So when Jesus would give his invitation while he walked the earth, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry burdens, and I will give you rest. All you who carry that, that burden of sin. As an atheist, though I said there was no God, didn't believe in a heaven or hell, I knew there was something wrong with me. Because there were times when I knew what I should do and didn't do it, and I knew what I shouldn't do and did do it. And my conscience, right? My conscience would convict me. I knew there was something wrong. That is the burden of sin. When God revealed his son to me, it was very simple to take him into my life. It was the best offer that I had ever heard, which is I could be forgiven of those things that I was very aware of that I did wrong. And then it tells us believes the greatest simplicity. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, to believe in something is to accept it as true, to accept it with confidence, to accept it with trust, to accept it with commitment, to believe in Jesus is to believe that, that he is God. He said, for he who has seen me has seen the Father, I and the Father are one. He called himself the great I am, if you understand that from Exodus chapter 3, 14. His followers worshipped him. These were, these were Jewish people. Jewish people do not worship anybody but God. And his followers came to believe that he was God and they worshipped him. Paul calls him in the epistles the image of the invisible God. And we are told that, that, that God became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. He became human. He took on flesh. He took on blood to connect with us, to relate to us. Ultimately, to die for us. To believe in Jesus is to believe that he is the Savior, your Savior. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through him. He becomes your way to God and the way to salvation. To believe in Jesus is to believe that he died for you on the cross. That he took your sins upon himself on the cross and he hung there six hours that Friday and he died in your place so that you would never have to die that separation from God, right? He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, in the Aramaic Greek, what was he saying? He was separated from the Father the first time in all eternity, this horrible, horrible thing so that you would never have to be separated, nor I would ever have to be separated. And to believe in to Jesus is to believe that he was raised from the dead and is alive. And he'll come and he'll live within your heart. You know, when you believe something, you believe it. Right? You live it. You're a martial artist, right? You're just in Africa. Your daughter told me. We're praying for you too. You got a virus or something on your way back. But you live that, right? You under, I, I understand it. We, we live what, what we believe in. What, whatever it is you, you say you believe in, if you truly believe in it, you live it. The, the opposite or the other side of the coin, it's not the opposite, the other side of the coin of belief is action or, or obedience. 
But if you say you, if you, say you believe something and you don't do it, then you're fooling yourself. To, to believe is, again, it is deep conviction and commitment to someone or, or, or something. So I want to ask you this, and I want to demonstrate belief in your life. You get an illness, a virus, remember we all had COVID. You go to the doctor. He examines you. He diagnoses your illness. Can you tell me, anyone here, what university your doctor graduated from? Is there anyone here who could tell me? I mean, if, if it's, if it's a, a general practitioner or a surgeon, cardiologist, could you tell me what university he graduated from? You don't have a clue. You don't know if he just made it all up. You just trust him with that. Doc, that's kind of scary, right? <laughs> so then what he does is he scribbles on a piece of paper. <laughs> Could you ever read one? I mean, this is, this is some type of, of encrypted writing that they train doctors with at medical school. You don't know what it means. His name you can read at the top, right, on his, on his letterhead but you can't decipher it. And then you take it to a pharmacist. You don't know her or him. You don't know about their education. You don't know if they're competent or not. And she puts some pills into a bottle and you go home and you take those pills with absolute faith, believing that they're going to make you better. You talk about faith and that's blind faith. That's blind faith. Every once in a while, a mistake is made, and someone dies. Faith in Jesus is rooted in evidence. It's not blind. It's, removed, it's essentially rooted in tremendous evidence for those who will take the time to discover it. There's a, a book, very influential in my life, it was volume one, volume two, the evidence that demands a verdict. But there, there is historical, archaeological, testimonial, empirical, exhaustive, experiential, documental, documented, real evidence about Jesus. You know, it's interesting. When you see the critics, they'll criticize Jesus or they'll criticize the Bible. Do you have a problem believing in Julius Caesar? You know how many fragments have been found that talk about Julius Caesar? And none of you have a problem believing in the historical figure, Julius Caesar. I think there are six fragments that have been found that talk about Julius Caesar. You know how many have been found about Jesus? Over 6,000. And when you, start, when you start to take in the testimonies of others, you end up with about 27,000. That's where if, if, if you take the time to examine those facts and examine that evidence, so I say to you, I've never doubted my salvation in Jesus Christ and I've never doubted God since moving from atheism to being a believer in Jesus Christ. I know whom I have believed in and per persuaded that he is able to keep which I have given unto him against that day. Number eight, 
in him the greatest person. So John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, in him, in the person of Jesus Christ, in the one who split history in two. It's funny, even the atheists have to abide by the calendar that he split in two. But Jesus Christ, when you go through the scriptures, you look at at who the Bible describes Jesus to be, that he is the word of God, the bread of life, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Lion of Judah, the Good Shepherd, the Mighty God, the Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Word of God, that he is our peace, that he is our joy, that he is the very Lamb of God, the Anointed One, over and over. He's in every chapter from Genesis to the book of Revelation. And we have this great revelation of him. And then the ninth, should not perish. The greatest deliverance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. The word there for perish is apalumi. And essentially what it means is death. So it's not referring to physical death. When a person physically dies, their soul is separated from their body. That is what happens at death. By the way, there's some real incredible medical evidence that points to this that has been discovered in these last 20, 30 years. Some doctors and scientists have written about that this mystical thing, life after death, happens. But that's not, that's not the death that John 3.16 is talking about. The death that John 3.16 is talking about is what is called the second death, and that is eternal separation from God. See, after you die, the question is, your soul is going to separate from your body, but where is it going to go? The concept of, of, of to perish is that it will be separated from God for all eternity. That is spiritual death. Separated from God. Hell. We throw that word around, right? Most people today, I think, in the, in the culture, in America at least, don't believe in hell. They'll believe in heaven, but they don't believe in hell. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. But we, we, we throw the word around. We, we say to people, that was a hell of a game last night, right? You have people say that? Or they will say, what the hell are you doing? Have you ever said that? My boss is making my job a living hell. Or we get angry at someone or they get angry at someone and they say, you can go straight to hell, right? I bet you didn't think you were going to hear those words today when you came to church. (laughs) And then there's a lot of jokes, right? You get people, you know, just like people want nothing to do with God and they're like, well, hell's not going to be a bad place. You know what? It's going to be where all the hot girls are and there's going to be all kinds of wild sex and booze and you're going to have fun. It's going to be partying. That's not the way Jesus described it. He used the word fire. Is there anything more painful in the human life than to be burned? I don't think so. People, people jumped out of the World Trade Center right at a hundred stories to their deaths to escape the pain of fire. Now, I don't know if, that is, if that's literal, 
It talks about it being complete darkness. It talks about there being gnashing of teeth. People will be gnashing. People will be angry. There's going to be a lot of angry people in hell. In fact, all the people in hell are going to be angry. You ever around angry people? Do you like being around angry people? I don't. And you get into a room with a bunch of angry people, I want to get, I want to get out of there. Hell will be a place of anger. You know, do you know how bad hell is? If you really want to see how bad hell is, look at what God did to keep you from going there. You spit on, beaten, his beard was pulled from his face, he was scourged, and then he was nailed to a cross where he hung for six hours. That's how bad hell is. But, the greatest difference. Thank God for buts. Not the ones you're sitting on. Right, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but... That is the greatest difference, that but, between hell and heaven. Hell, right? The place of fire, the place of gnashing of teeth, the place of darkness. Heaven, listen listen what, and you get some great descriptions in Revelation 21, 22 about heaven. Let me just read this to you. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more tears. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. It will be a place of complete shalom, of complete wellness and well-being, of joy, of peace. And then he said, have the greatest certainty. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, have everlasting life. That is something you can have and you can have it right now. Romans chapter 5.15 and 16 says this, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You can come to Jesus and have that absolute assurance in your heart that you are his. And if you died today, that you are going to be with him. I've done many funerals. been doing this for 40 years. I've been in the hospitals or at the homes of people who are dying, who are believers, And I've been there with people who are not believers. I want to assure you of something. There is a huge difference. There's a huge difference between someone who has the assurance of salvation in their heart and someone who doesn't. And I just tell you this. For the the heroic who I've known, who I watch die, who would boldly say that I'm not afraid to die. When it came time, they were lying. They were lying. I want to read. I want to read to you 
just for a couple of these. I've, I've collected, I'm not going to use the quotes of people who I was with when they died. I want to use the quotes of some famous people and what they said, just a few. So Thomas Hobbes, he wrote Leviathan. You read the book Leviathan maybe when you were in school. He was a political philosopher, and on his deathbed he said, I say again, if I had the whole world at my disposal, I would give it to live one day. I'm about to take a leap into the dark. John Knox, the preacher, on his deathbed said, live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. Thomas Paine, the atheist, he said this, and I quote, stay with me for God's sake, I cannot bear to be left alone. Oh Lord, help me, oh God, what, I have, what have I done to suffer so much? What will become of me in the hereafter? I would give worlds if I had them, that the age of reason had never been published. Oh Lord, help me. How many of you have read the age of reason? I don't know if you, I have, and some of you remember, yeah. Part of it is good, the political part, but the part about God was just the total, I mean, he just attacked Christianity. D.L. Moody, the great uh, preacher, said this, the world is receding and the heaven is opening. You know, my father said on his deathbed, my brother who is not a believer is on one side, I'm on the other side. My father received the Lord at 68 years old here in this church. He died at 94 years old. But he said on his deathbed, he looked up and he said, look, <laughs> the, ceiling is, the ceiling is opening. And I see clouds coming for me. You know what the Bible describes angel as? Angels as clouds? He says, the, angel, the clouds are coming for me. And I'm there and I said, Dad, they're not clouds. They're angels coming for you. Voltaire, famous anti-Christian atheist. I used to be, <laughs> used to read him all the time. He said, I am abandoned by God and man. August uh, Toplady. He was the author of the hymn, Rock of Ages. He died at 38. He said this, and I quote, I enjoy heaven already in my soul. My prayers are all converted into praises. And David Hum, the atheist philosopher, famous for his religious skepticism, he cried loud on his deathbed, I am in flames. And it is said his desperation was a horrible scene. And Thomas Alva Edison, how many of you know Thomas was a Christian? He says, it is very beautiful over there. There is a difference. There's a difference between someone who has that assurance in their heart of salvation and someone who doesn't. Last point, everlasting life, the greatest possession. John 3.16, again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When we think of everlasting life, we usually think of it quantitatively, that it's, it's quantity, the idea that it's just never ending. Let me just ask you this. If you could just go on living this life, would you want to? I know some people are really seeking, scientists now are seeking ways to extend life to 200, 300 years. Some are even saying that they might be able to do it indefinitely. I'll tell you, I, I've enjoyed my life. I don't have a bad life. I have a good life. I don't want to live forever here on this earth. 
But if it's everlasting life is just continuing to live the life that I lived on this earth, it's not something that, that I'm interested in. I want to live healthy. I want to be healthy until the day the Lord calls me home. That's kind of my prayer, and whatever that is, that is. But that everlasting life is more about equality. It, it talks a lot about it being a quality of relationship. Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We talk about this a lot. The word for know is genosko, and it means to know in an intimate way. It's, it's a quality of relationship. To know God, to, to experience God, to experience who he is, his, his love, his joy, his peace, his holiness, his grace, his mercy. You know, in, in the human heart, many theologians and philosophers have described the human heart has a vacuum in it. And whatever you put into it, right, you put the temporary into it, you put the earthly into it, you put the material into it, and I think you, you'll agree, it never seems to really bring fulfillment. It might make you happy for a little while. It's like when you get a new car, right? You get the new car and you're really happy. And then what happens after if the car starts breaking down? You get a flat tire, you get a scratch. Remember your first scratch on the car? It's like, ah, you get freaking out. Or you get a little puppy dog. You know how excited you are when you got your puppy dog? You got the cute little puppy dog, and you get up in the morning, you run down to see the cute little puppy dog. You didn't even mind when the cute little puppy dog pooped all over the floor. But then the dog gets a little older, and now he poops on the floor. Or he tears your carpet apart. And all of a sudden, you're rolling up newspapers chasing the dog around the house. We, we think that things, right, stuff is going to bring some type of eternal fulfillment. Success, money, sex, achievements. I want to, I want to share something. I'll share with you about, about two people who I admired. One is Johnny Menzel. The other is Pistol Pete Maravich. I think Johnny Menzel was the most exciting football player I've ever seen. Played for Texas A&M. He, he absolutely, the most exciting. When Johnny Menzel won the Heisman Trophy back in 2012, if I'm correct, he was the most, I mean, I, I, I watch a little football. Every Saturday, I watch Johnny Menzel play football. I've never seen anybody play football like Johnny Menzel. His, his, his running, his dodging, he was like a five foot 10, 200 pound kid, but the most exciting football player I've ever seen. I watched the documentary on ESPN. I encourage you to watch it. It's sad. There are not too many things that make me cry, and I cried. I wondered what happened to Johnny Menzel because the season after, he was good, but not as good as he was the season before, and then he got drafted by the Cleveland Browns, and his career just went downhill from there. They cut him, they let him go, and he never came back to playing in the NFL. Find out that he was an alcoholic, that he had a major drug issue, and that he was, you know, in fact, this is what he used to do on the field all the time when he scored a touchdown, like the money, the money, the money. He was doing all kinds of things that was violating the NCA rules, and he was getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars under the table selling autographs, which I believe personally that college players should be allowed to do. I think the NCA is somewhat criminal in what they do. They make all this money off of kids, and they don't give them a chance to make any money for themselves. But needless to say, he broke the rules of the NCAA, and... After going through cocaine addiction, numerous rehabs, Johnny Menzel now is back home living with his parents at 28 years old. 
somewhat of a broken man. I, I don't think God is done with him. But he hasn't received Jesus. And when I was looking at Johnny Mizzou, I just said, Johnny needs Jesus in his life. He got everything. Let me just tell you, this kid was about uh, as on top of the world. He's hanging out with LeBron. He's hanging out with all the movie stars from Hollywood. I mean, this is like his pictures. Like he, he's, he's on top of the world. Money that you couldn't imagine. That, right, $100,000 a day for signing autographs. And he signed an $8 million contract with the Browns. He's on top of the world. Has, has everything that I think any human being could want. The girls are swarming over him. And yet he said in the video, he was totally unfulfilled and totally unhappy. Because that void, that vacuum, just keeps sucking it up. It just keeps sucking it up. Pistol Pete Maravich. Before Michael Jordan, before Dr. J, some of you basketball fans, before Connie Hawkins, you know, the, the, the superstars of superstars of basketball, there was a kid named Pistol Pete Maravich. He was, he was the number one draft pick out of college. I mean, this kid, he, you know, he could, he could do things with the ball that, again, you, you know, you'd see Michael Jordan do. Maybe couldn't, he didn't have the athletic ability of Michael Jordan, but just an amazing basketball player. Drugs. Got into all types of strange religions. And then came to faith in Jesus Christ. His family his coaches, his friends, all said that he finally found the peace that he was looking for. That money and women and fame could not give him. And Pistol Pete was playing basketball in Colorado Springs at a church. Dr. James Dobson was on the court with him. Pete at the time was like 40 years old and God took him home. He just dropped dead of a heart attack. And God took him out. But he went and he experienced in this life, again, that fullness that God offers to a person. And ultimately, the greater fullness in the next life. Eternal life is not just a quantity, it is a quality. And Jesus, when he said in John 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they would have life and have it more abundantly. It is an abundant life that, that you can have in this life. Ultimately, on steroids. <laughs> Sorry for my athletic uh, background. Uh, just so much greater in the next. But you can have that abundant life in this life. I'll read it to you one more time. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm going to ask a question but you need to ask yourself the question do you believe in him? Do you believe that he is God? Do you believe that he is Savior? 
Do you believe that he died for you on the cross and took your place? Do you believe that he was raised from the dead? Because that's something, that, that act of faith is something only you can do. No one else can do it for you. I can't. The Pope can't. The priest can't. Your mommy and daddy can't. We say, God has many children, but no grandchildren. Putting your faith in Jesus. So I leave you with that this morning. Make that decision. The 17 people who are going to be baptized, they've made that decision. I hope you do too. I hope I helped you today. I prayed a lot about this today. I knew that there were going to be a lot of guests here at the church seeing their loved ones being baptized. I just hope that your heart is open to receive that message. Maybe never see you again. Maybe see you in heaven. Hopefully. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, for your word. And we thank you, Lord God, for this word in John 3.16. This simple message, Lord God, of what you've given us. Of who you are, of what you've done. And the simplicity of how we can come to receive that gift of eternal life by putting our faith in Jesus. And I just pray, Lord God, as people bow their heads now, they're talking to you. They're making that commitment. They're putting their faith in you. And they're telling you, Lord, that they believe you died for them and were raised from the dead. And they're confessing that you are their God and their Savior. Bless all, Lord God. Bless all who are going to be baptized in these next moments. For in Jesus' name we pray this, amen. If, if you would all stay.